So I um, have the pleasure of uh, sitting down with uh, Dr. S uh, Stephen Lloyd, um, who has a, just a, uh, a wonderful story to tell, first of all, and also a, um, a really decades of experience um, with uh, uh, addictions and mental health. Dr. Lloyd is an internist, and as you'll hear in a few moments, he, he uh, got very involved in uh, addiction and then in addiction medicine and has now he's uh, uh, have, has now uh, spent uh, the last 15 years of his career um, as one of the leaders in um, uh, as I say substance abuse and he has uh, he is a, a director of a addiction treatment center he's uh, been involved in uh, many uh, local and national uh, issues around addiction and um, has been a national speaker for prescribing controlled substances for many years and really is a recognized expert in the field. So, uh, Steve, I'm very happy that you've taken a few minutes to talk with us. And I, I think I'd like you to just maybe start off briefly and uh, uh, just telling us briefly about your your personal journey with addiction and and how it really informs your work today with patients with addiction. Sure, and first of all, it's it's an honor to get to talk with you. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, my my own personal journey started in you know with my own addiction. Obviously, I never you know when I was in med school or residency never dreamed of this career path. Uh, but in my chief resident year in my internal medicine residency, I started, uh, I guess, experimenting around with uh, opioids, mainly hydrocodone, and I had a lot of things going on coming out of residency into practice, and the, and the you know the pressures that come along with that, and you know anxiety and that kind of stuff. Very high class problems now. Looking back on them at the time, they were you know very repressive for me, and and so I, I experimented with a half of a, high, a five milligram hydrocodone on the way home from work one day, and, and really felt like I'd found a cure for my anxiety. And what I didn't realize at the time, Dan, is I'd always had a, I'd always been a problem drinker. You know, I never looked at myself as an alcoholic, but I for sure was, and, and it didn't have any clue that that put me at increased risk, you know, to uh, to misuse prescribed substances. And so, uh, you know, that that half of a five milligram hydrocodone that day on the way home from work, uh, within three years, turned into uh, 500 milligram a day uh, of of oxycontin. And, uh, you know, I, if you go through that time frame of that three years, I was now an attending physician. I'd taken a job at the university that I went to, where I went to med school and uh, was, a, was a practicing uh, clinician uh, working in the hospital in the private, and then in the private setting as well and teaching medical students, residents, pharmacy students and pharmacy residents uh, basically on a daily basis the whole time, uh, Dan, while, uh, you know, while, uh, you know, going th further down the ladder, uh, you know, on these addictions. And uh, my life went like that for, like I said, for about three years. And, and you know, things, the last thing, you know, what, what never really went was my work. My home life was deteriorating, my relationship with my wife and my kids. And, you know, so I basically got to the point of every day that I couldn't go more than just a couple of hours without taking pills. And so at the very end, you know, when I got up to 500 milligrams and all the things that we learned in medical school about, uh, you know, dependence, uh, intolerance, those things all happened to me. And, and so I, not only was I not getting the feeling that I wanted from the medication anymore, I was just having to take, you know, a load of the medication just to keep from being deathly ill, you know, withdrawals. And so at the, at the end, I was taking the equivalent of 100 Vicodin a day. 
and uh, which you know even telling you that right now I kind of smile like golly how's that possible but you know that's where I wound up I had access as a, as a, as a physician and, and so you know if I got a bottle of 90 hydrocodone or oxycodone at the start of the day and that, normally that'll take you through you know, a month and I couldn't get through a day I needed actually a few more than that to get through a day and so that's the way my life was and you know luckily for me I'm a physician uh, I knew and my dad intervened on me and and uh, I was really desperate. I knew I was going to die, and I didn't need anything bad to happen at that point because I was going to bed half the night praying that I wouldn't die and the other half praying that I would. And, again, I didn't understand anything about addiction. I was in medical school and residency, you know, little to no training on addiction and little to no training on opioid uh, pain medications. And, and so, you know, I, I wasn't any more educated than, the, you know, the, the heroin addict on the street. And uh, so my dad intervened on me, uh, and because of my profession, I didn't just get kicked to the curbside or get second-class treatment, or, you know, I got 90 days of high-quality uh, inpatient treatment in one of the best facilities in the world, and uh, that was followed by, you know, five years of aftercare and follow-up and advocacy by the Physicians Health Program in my state, which I actually continue today, even though it's been 15 years. I, I still do all those same things today and still belong to, you know, to that Physicians Health Program, a proud member now for you know, coming up on 15 years, and, and my life turned around then, um, and, you know, as I w got further along back in my practice, I, I just became uh, more and more interested with, you know, how to, how to help people with this disease. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, you know, overdose is now the number one killer for Americans uh, under 50 years old, yet our workforce and our clinicians and and doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants are ill-equipped to handle it because they have almost no understanding of really any aspect of it, and it's extremely complex. And so uh, I guess probably about nine or 10 years ago, uh, I basically started doing this full-time. Uh, I got involved in several other things, uh, expert witness-wise, in, in uh, working for the federal government and in, in going after doctors for improperly prescribing medication. These aren't people who are just writing a few extra scripts. These are criminals who are you know, who are selling prescriptions and trading prescriptions for sex and that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, of course, I got interested in the treatment side and mainly the role of medication. And then I just learned that, you know, addiction is, 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 is such a complex issue. And you're looking at, at, you know, the biopsychosocial model component, which is something that, you know, I hope to address at, at our upcoming conference. But, uh, you know, look at the social determinants of, of disease and, and or social determinants of health and how all of those things interplay into someone uh, who has addictive disease and the different things that we need to address to give them the best chance at long-term recovery like I've, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be in now for as long as I have. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a thumbnail of, of, of where I was, what happened, and, you know, and where I am now. Uh, now, you know, every day uh, is, is, is just packed with this from, from morning to night. And I feel like I, you know, I don't feel like I work because it is literally so much fun getting, uh, getting to watch people's lives change and getting to be a part of that. Um, I'm the inpatient uh, medical director at uh, two large treatment facilities where I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, one is a, a outpatient uh, private insurance, uh, you know, traditional residential rehab facility, and then the other one is an inner city facility in downtown Nashville that mainly uh, caters to uh, uh, mainly indigent uh, inner city women. And then, of course, you know, outside of that, I have uh, other interests in, in areas of policy. And then mainly, you know, I guess my main goal, Dan, if you ask me what I do every single day, I try to help as many people uh, get into the recovery process as humanly possible. In order to do that, uh, it's a day-to-day -day battle against the stigma uh, associated with addictive disease. So 
that's how I spend my time. And uh, you know, I, I, I really consider myself to be very fortunate. Well, that was a wonderful overview, Steve. I, <clears throat> there's many places that I want to go uh, with with the many things that you you've already said. Uh, I think one area I want you to talk a little bit uh, about is uh, this uh, comment that you you know social determinants of health, and I think that's such an important area to for people to understand and. Uh, along with, uh, and I've I've read some of what uh, of your work and talking about uh, how that you know the five years out if you really have a good recovery it's uh, it's five years out and how uh, doctors and airline pilots because of their uh, their professions and the way their their professions look at that and try to handle that have uh, a, a very high rate of recovery and. So could you talk about those two things uh, in in some ways and, and how you see uh, how important that is and, and the long-term recovery of uh, for addiction? Absolutely. So, you know, it, really the, the long-term success in, in any kind of substance use disorder, you know, mine was opioids and benzodiazepines, but you can you know, just put drug X or process Y in there, whether it's gambling, sex, uh, internet pornography. I mean, there's all kinds of process addictions as well, but you know, the, the long-term outcome is best predicted by the amount of time that you engage in the recovery process. And so you got a certain, you know, you can make projections once you've been, you know, once you've been in recovery for a year, what's your chances of getting to 15 years. And but, you know, once you get to five years, that, that appears to be where the, where the curve just takes it, you know, a steep turn straight up. And so it's about keeping people engaged uh, in the process. And sometimes it's hard, you know, you, you get to doing well and you think, oh, I'm cured, I'm better. You know, I can go into this bar and I can have one drink and, and that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, that hasn't worked out well in the past. And there's a lot of things that, you know, that play in that. But if you look at the groups that are most successful uh, by profession, it's doctors and airline pilots. And it's, it's not a secret. They get high quality inpatient treatment followed by uh, long-term aftercare follow-up and accountability. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, what I affectionately call the big stick. And, you know, the big stick is, is a license, a medical license, a pilot's license of which you earn your livelihood. And uh, every time it's been looked at with doctors and airline pilots, you're looking at somewhere between 70, 78 and 92% uh, recovery rates at five years. And, and then, you know, to be honest, we don't bat that with strep throat, right? And so people look at addiction as, oh gosh, you know, nobody gets better and, you know, it's not treatable and it's the same story over and over. And really it's not. You know, when we have the components of effective treatment that are addressing more than just the, the drug issues, because one of the things that still, you know, blows my mind is that, you know, I was in treatment for eight hours a day for 90 days, and that's what, 720 hours or so, you know, and how many of those hours do we actually talk about, you know, substance abuse? How many, how many of those hours do we talk about what we do when we have cravings and those type of things? And man, it was almost none, maybe two or three hours out of that whole time. It's not good night. What, you know, what did you do the rest of that time? It's all about those things about social determinants of health, right? I mean, uh, you know, the biggest thing, I guess, is, is community, is, is being able to walk through the shame of, of things from the past and share it with other human beings as a part of the community uh, and getting, you know, reinforcement and support. And most of all, somebody who can put their arm around you in times of, of strife and help you see things you can't see. Uh, stable living situations, people that we, we surround ourselves with, a lot of people with addiction issues come out of very traumatic backgrounds, and hopefully we get a chance to talk. Well, I know we're going to get a chance because I'm going to do it uh, at the conference to talk a little bit about the a little bit about the ACEs study. You know, adverse childhood experiences. 
these experiences that we have early in our life that wind up shaping us going forward. And, and those being physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. And then there's some other things that fit into ACEs. But, you know, starting to address those things then, which doesn't have anything to do with substance abuse, and you can't change the past. I can't change the fact that I was sexually abused when I was a kid. I can't change the fact that I was physically abused when I was a little boy. But what I can do is work on changing my reaction to that. And what I can do is engage in meaningful relationship with other people that can support me when I'm struggling with some aspect of that uh, in, in almost, well, not almost, in, in a, in a post-traumatic stress disorder type way. And of course our crutch, Dan, and you know this as well as anybody, is to write a medicine for it, right? And one of my favorite quotes is from Franz Kafka uh, from back in 1919. He said, to write a prescription is easy, but to come to an understanding with patients is difficult. And, and so we tend to treat these things in our patients with, you have symptom X, here's drug Y. Instead of trying to look at, you know, what are, what are the factors that, that got you where you are? And is there any way that we can help start to address some of those factors or maybe address the sequela of those factors that's going to help you going forward that might not involve the latest pharmaceutical that's going to cause, you know, a slew of side effects and other issues. And so when I talk about social determinants of health, for me, that's what I'm talking about. Now, if we look at somebody uh, who don't, doesn't have the resources that I have, that's not a doctor, that doesn't have my income, then you're talking about things such as sim uh, simple as uh, food, uh, a, a, a roof over your head, uh, transportation, uh, education, uh, a job, right? These, these, these type things that are going to support someone in the recovery. One of the things I get frustrated with on a daily basis is, is I work with drug-dependent pregnant women, almost all of them uh, intravenous users of heroin and fentanyl, and they're pregnant. And I can get them to a certain place from a medical standpoint and even start to get them to engage in community. But at some point, I've got to let them fly. And a lot of times that letting them fly is back into the same places uh, where they were being abused. And so now you're not talking about medicine. You're not talking about, you know, groups. You're not talking about therapy. You're talking about the basis of a safe place to lay your head at night, uh, a place where you're not going to continue to have to give yourself up for, you know, for whatever. And, and so when I talk about social determinants of health, these are the other things that, that I'm talking about around that. And, and then all of those things are compounded and, and made much worse if there's any kind of involvement in the criminal justice system. Because the criminal justice system I've learned over the past 15 years is designed to keep people in it. Uh, once you get in, it's very difficult to get out. As a matter of fact, when I'm helping people with addiction now and I'm looking at these areas of their life, these, you know, these, these social determinants of health, I've learned that I have to help them address the legal system first. And, and that's really a shame, but I really do. Because they can't do anything else until, until those things are taken care of, until they're off probation, until they have a driver's license back. You know, it's hard to get a job if you can't drive and you don't have transportation. And most of the people I work with are in rural, to, rural areas. And so, you know, I learned very quickly that that is the one thing that we have to address first in order to get, my, you know, get patients moving in the right direction. Yeah, we often talk about, at least in functional medicine, about uh, you know systems biology, and you're talking even a broader, uh, you know, social determinants and social biology, if you will, if there's if there's such a term. But it is it's even broader in terms of the things that you're talking about to making sure that people are safe and <clears throat> and they and they can navigate uh, the system. So I, I very much agree with you. 
there, there's there's a picture I, a, a picture I use in, in my talk stand that, that I absolutely love. And probably if, if I had to give a talk in just five minutes, I'd just show this picture. Probably that's all my talks are worth. But but this picture is a is a is a picture of of, of a third world country that you know that that has the the water supply going by with people doing their laundry in it and and you know their human waste going in and animal waste going in. And it's also this their drinking supply right downstream. And and I use that picture to, to illustrate this point. If you you know what what I see happen a lot of times with mission work in other countries is you go down and you pull these kids and these folks out of that environment and you give them the best that Western medicine has to offer, antibiotics for you know infections. But then then they go right back to the to the same contaminated water source that, that they live in, and and they're right back where they were. Right. I mean. If you want to make a difference there, it's not about the Western medicine and the antibiotics that you're going to administer. It's about cleaning the water supply, right? And and and, and that's exactly the way that, that I look at a lot of my patients and even myself with addiction. If I simply can, you know, somehow white knuckle and stop the substance abuse and I don't address any of the factors, I don't address that dirty water that I'm drinking out of, I'll be I'll be sick and I'll go right back. And for me, that's the that's the clearest illustration, that, you know, that I can make, at least from a public health standpoint. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and I think that um, that leads a bit to another question that I I know you uh, in some of your work you've uh, talked about this uh, dual diagnosis and addressing, uh, if you will, co-occurring. Uh, other mental health issues and addiction together and what we often do as you just uh, talked about is you know you take that addiction and you try to do something with that which is obviously important and important from a social determinants of health as well but um, what can you can you speak a little bit about um, how you in your work and how you think just uh, philosophically that that should be happening and addressing those those other mental health issues I, I think I can, Dan. I mean, it's, as you know, it's extremely complex, but the, really the, the root of the problem is that anybody with a, with a behavioral disorder, such as depression, anxiety, or what I see most common, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress dis, uh, disorder, and I, I'm going to call it a diagnosis of ADD, uh, attention deficit disorder, because I'm, I'm, I've got great issues with, with that particular diagnosis in this population, which I'll try to talk about just a little bit in a second. But, but whenever you have any one of those underlying conditions, your chances of long-term recovery without addressing those underlying conditions are, are very low. And, and so I will see in, in, in my state, I, I live in the state of Tennessee, in my state, we have state mental health agencies that absolutely, you know, is actually a, a kind of a, a two-room house, substance abuse and then mental health. And we will have mental health hospitals that will discharge patients because they have a substance use disorder and they don't address substance use disorders. And I, I've always scratched my head at that and going, really? You know, you, you have to be able to address these two things together. The school of thought in the past has been, that, you know, you've got to figure out which one came first. And that's really not true. I mean, if you've got the presence of one, uh, in, in, you know, in, in, the, in the face of, uh, of addictive disease, then you absolutely have to address them together. Now, when it comes to addressing them, I guess therein lies the, the rub for me, because too often the addressing of depression or anxiety is a knee-jerk pharmaceutical. And you know, and I know this is probably not the platform for it, but when we start talking about drugs like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and uh, you know, there's there's going to be some a little controversy around that. 
but but then benzodiazepines, you know, which are which are addictive in and of themselves, and then combined with opioid painkillers, you know, increase your risk of overdose and death. So, you know, the easy thing to do there is just to put people on medication. The more difficult thing is to engage in those 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 therapies that we know work for these for these conditions, and and for post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, and trauma, the most effective treatment is EMDR, and you know, it's it's a behavioral health treatment. It's highly effective. What do I see most often? I see a knee-jerk medication uh, just basically to blunt someone's feelings so that they don't experience the symptoms of it and you move on. So you've really done nothing to address the underlying problem. And then, and then last but not least, I gave you that, you know, that quote, ADD diagnosis. And the problem I really have with that one, Dan, is I'm, I, I'm not one of these people that says it doesn't exist. I believe that it exists. I believe it's extremely overdiagnosed. And, and I'm really, really hesitant to put people on stimulus that you treat them with. They're controlled substances and they bring with them their own bag of issues. But if you look at the symptoms of chronic trauma and then turn around and look at the symptoms of attention deficit disorder, I defy you to tell the difference. And so, again, we go back to the Kafka quote, it's easy to write a prescription, it's hard to come to an understanding of patients. So I see patient after patient who have been subjected and are now uh, you know, psychologically addicted uh, to drugs like, you know, to the stimulant drugs like Adderall and, and methylphenidate uh, for the, their attention to deficit disorder when really the problem is chronic uh, underlying trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, which are best treated by other modalities. And so, you know, we have to understand that. If we don't understand that, then we, then we simply, you know, keep with the pharmaceutical approach, which I think uh, prevents, you know, prevents people from doing as well as they can long term. Thank you.